You do not have a military stalemate. You do not have a belief on the Taliban side that they can't win. I mean, we're talking about we're getting out on 9-11. 9-11 for Al-Qaeda now becomes Al-Qaeda Victory Day. 9-11 of 2021 is the date that Al-Qaeda triumphs over the United States in alliance with the Taliban. Welcome to the Burn Bag Podcast. My name is Andre Gonoella. I'm being joined by my co-host Ryan Rosenthal. And today we are uh, very happy to be joined by Ambassador Ronald Newman, uh, who was the former U.S. ambassador to Afghanistan. Before that, he was also ambassador to Algeria and Bahrain and had a long and distinguished career in a diplomacy that's really been focused in on the Middle East. Uh, the subject of today's conversation will, of course, be Afghanistan, sort of giving you folks in our audience a primer on the Afghan war and really talking about the Afghan drawdown uh, that President Biden just announced a few weeks ago. Uh, Ambassador, we're happy to be joined by you. Uh, but first, I was listening to your session in December with uh, Michael Morell on Intelligence Matters. And uh, the former acting CIA director noted that you and your father both served as ambassador to Afghanistan. And the only other father and son pair who had a similar sort of thing like that was John Adams and John Quincy Adams, both uh, our former presidents. Uh, I sort of want to ask you, uh, your father served in Afghanistan before the 1980s, before that Soviet invasion. I'm sure you must have visited him in Afghanistan. What was it like when your father was serving there? Well, I went, uh, by the way, I have to correct the record. It turns out there was another father-son uh, couple in the latter part of the 19th century. Oh, okay. A fellow named Francis, a family named Francis. Both father and son both served the court of Austria-Hungary. They're just for historical mm -hmm. record. It has no political significance, by the way. It just proves you. <laughs> you can do this by dumb luck once every hundred years or so. Um, in terms of Afghanistan, I first went there in 1967, just finished graduate school. I had three and a half months before I had to report for the army. Uh, and so I, my wife and I went to Afghanistan where my father was ambassador. We, was a peaceful country, it was very, very undeveloped. We're just beginning to get into development. We traveled all over the country. Uh, we drove all the way through the center of the country with an American uh, geologist and his Afghan counterpart, all dirt roads and river ports and mountain passes. Uh, I hunted gazelle outside Lashkagar in the south in a jeep. I went with a hunting party. It, being the ambassador's son was a good deal. You got invited to do cool stuff. And uh, so we went all the way north, uh, north and east to the end of the road and then left the cars or jeeps and went by horseback along the Oxus, the Amudara River, and then switched to Yaks and uh, base camped up about 13,000 feet uh, in the uh, in the Pamirs. And uh, they hunted Marco Polo sheep by a camera. So, you know, you could travel anywhere as long as you were a little bit prudent. None of those trips were armed or had security. It was a nice country. Well, what an incredible introduction to a country that you would eventually serve in, and certainly differences between your father's service and your service there. I want to begin to frame this conversation about Afghanistan, but I think we must go back in history a ways to the Soviet invasion. And uh, Ambassador, I'm curious how you view the Soviet invasion as informing the, not necessarily the current state of affairs, but 
certainly the U.S. invasion and, and the U.S. war in Afghanistan. I think they were pretty different occupations, pretty different occasions. The Soviet invasion followed an Afghan coup, actually two coups, um, the second of which brought a communist Afghan domestic communist government to power. That government was frankly kind of wacky. They they started trying to impose all kinds of social change in the name of Marxist ideology, and they just generally aggravated Afghans, many of whom wouldn't have known a communist if he bit them, but they were violently opposed to the changes that these Afghans were trying to oppose. And that government was beginning to lose a war. And the Soviet invasion, as is now pretty clear from things that have been declassified after the collapse of the Soviet Union, invaded much more on the basis of you can't let a communist government be overthrown than because they had any enormous desire to occupy Afghanistan. But they plunged in. Uh, they plunged in, killed the then president, who was a communist, put a different communist in place, uh, proceeded to do all kinds of things, some of which sound very familiar, uh, adding to girls' education, expanding schools and roads, some of which, though, were totally different from anything we did, like carpet bombing villages. And so they basically turned the country against uh, I think the, that's one of the biggest starting differences to me, that when we invaded, it was in response to the attack on New York in 9-11, Taliban refusal to give up al-Qaeda. And we were generally well-received. In fact, I think one of our perhaps early mistakes was the assumption that we had to go in with a very light footprint initially because uh, Afghanistan was the so-called graveyard of empire. And so this was an article of faith for uh, then Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld, for instance. And in fact, we were actually, according to people I know who were on the ground then, we were very well received, and Afghans saw this as the potential end of a long nightmare. Uh, Taliban was really decisively defeated, appeared to be decisively defeated. but by our light footprint approach, we did nothing to stabilize the country. And so we allowed a lot of score settling to go on. As new people took power, they settled old scores that pushed people back into war. Um, but, you know, 2020 hindsight is easy. So uh, with regards to that Soviet invasion and the Soviet war in Afghanistan, the U.S. was supporting the Mujahideen at that time, and that support, I think, has elicited some, I guess, controversies in sort of the present day with regards to that, perhaps that connection between Al-Qaeda. So, Ambassador, I sort of want you to sort of set the record straight on what sort of lineage there was, if any, between the Mujahideen and Al-Qaeda. Uh, what were exactly the explicit goals of that uh, arming uh, by the U.S.? And uh, how did it just develop over time, over that decade? Uh, the U.S. policy was fairly simple, kill communists. Uh, it was not a very sophisticated policy. We were concerned, the United States was concerned, that this was the first time since the end of World War II that the Soviets had moved into a country which was not already a communist 
country that it, not the places they'd taken at the end of World War. Uh, and they, there was a lot of fear that this was a start of a whole new kind of expansion of the Soviet Union, uh, fears of how this would uh, impact on Iran, which at that point was a friend still, although well into the Iranian Revolution. Uh, and so the result was a decision to back the anti uh, the anti Soviet forces it didn't come at immediately. They got pressed pretty close to the wall by Soviet actions. The assistance had to all be funneled through Pakistan with the cooperation of the Pakistani government, because Pakistan is the country that borders Afghanistan that was willing to be helpful. The Pakistanis routed a lot of the aid to the most fundamental religious groups, although not all of it. That's somewhat exaggerated. The, there was no Taliban movement at that point, and there was no Al-Qaeda at that point. You had a whole spectrum of more and less radical Islamic groups. Islam was the fundamental uh, uprising call against the Soviets, drive the uh, heretical invader out. The, at the end of the war, which then lapsed at the Soviet pullout into a uh, into more of a civil war and a general breakdown, the Taliban emerged much later in this war. And at first, the Taliban seemed to be a force for order compared to the horrors of the civil war going on and all these warlords that were just uh, oppressing everybody. And so there was some hope that actually this might stabilize things. Even the United States regarded this as possible at the beginning. The development of al-Qaeda was a separate thing. Bin Laden and people who became al-Qaeda had gone to Afghanistan to fight in what was considered the jihad against the Soviets. And they remained. Al-Qaeda itself was a formation in opposition to foreign troops coming into Saudi Arabia to oppose uh, Saddam Hussein's taking of Kuwait. The Middle East gets tangled sometimes. Sorry about that. Um, Al-Qaeda then was driven out. Bin Laden himself was expelled from Saudi Arabia. It took root in Sudan for a while. It was expelled from there. Bin Laden went to Afghanistan, where he had fought in the war against the Soviets, uh, and became useful to the Taliban for uh, shock troops and for uh, financial support. And became more and more allied with the Taliban. But it's a much later development than our war. We may well have helped finance some of the more radical Islamists, but uh, al-Qaeda itself is a later development. So, Ambassador, I want to take a, a step back and, and talk about the rise of the Taliban. And just because it's important for, for today's conversation to understand who they are, what their beliefs are and what it is and how it really is, is how they govern, right? And, and, and in that question, has their governing style changed over time? Of course, you know, they, they effectively ruled Afghanistan from 1996 to 2001 until the, 
the U.S. Uh, intervention. The Taliban grew up in the area of Kandahar. They grew up as a resistance to uh, warlords who were rampaging around and abusing people. And they were initially backed by Pakistan. There are, <coughs> excuse me, there are those who claim that they were a creation of Pakistan. I don't think that the evidence I've seen supports that. I think the Pakistanis did support them uh, from a fairly early point because they seem to be bringing order to the country. Um, and the Pakistanis saw them as useful, but they were not, I um, don't think they were initially a Pakistani creation. Uh, the Taliban had a, a pretty simple kind of back to basic Islam, um, very few educated uh, technocrats or leaders, but they had this kind of simple faith and this concept of stabilizing the country that was very popular to people who'd already been at war for 20 odd years. Uh, and so as the Taliban moved north to Kabul, they actually fought very few battles. It was mostly a matter of negotiation and getting people to change sides, join them. Uh, they maneuvered the forces of the then government out of Kabul. And then it developed into, on the military side, a rather long war to take back the rest of the country from the various forces, domestic, internal, civil war fighting. Um, remember that Afghanistan was just totally messed up at this point. Most of the destruction of Kabul did not come from the Taliban or from the Russians. It came from infighting between the different Mujahideen groups that just rained rockets on Kabul, killing all kinds of people. Um, so as this civil war went on, the strengthening of the tie with al-Qaeda also was very useful militarily to the Taliban. And in fact, one of the last things al-Qaeda did before our invasion, two days before they, uh, was two days before the bombing in New York, they managed to assassinate the uh, Afghan project leader, Ahmed Shah Massoud, who was really one of the strongest figures of the resistance to the Taliban. Despite the length and complexity, this is still a pretty compressed history. Uh, certainly a very compressed history. And I mean, uh, I mean, following that Soviet invasion, when the Taliban were sort of gaining power and taking over, I mean, we saw, I think, the the execution of uh, the second president of Afghanistan, Mohammad uh, Najibullah, and uh, just so much more that sort of occurred in those uh, 10 years. But what was the actual governing style like of the Taliban? What were their actual beliefs? Were they uh, from a particular sect of Islam? Uh, what was sort of going on in terms of, you know, their espousing of their beliefs and how they sort of translated to governance on the ground? Taliban basically followed the Hanafi school of Sunni Islam, but you might say the Hanafi school as interpreted through basically Pushtun tribal customs as well. Uh, so that they're, they're quite extreme in the sense of complete separation of the sexes. Uh, <clears throat> they, it was also, you know, not to be too pejorative, but I think you could say the Taliban were basically a primitive view of Islam. They wanted to go back to what they saw as the purity of the seventh century. And so no music. 
no dancing. Beards had to appear. You couldn't have short hair. You could be lashed in the street for uh, wearing the wrong clothes. It was a, a total domination of society in an attempt to impose these strictures. At the same time, they had very few technocrats. So government functioning basically broke down, not because they were opposed to institutions, but because they had no way of running. Uh, just to give you an example of the deterioration, I remember talking to the first uh, USAID director after the invasion of 2001, and he told me about going to the Ministry of Education. All the windows were shot out. They And remember that the city fell to the Mujahideen with, with no, and to us with no fighting. The Taliban basically pulled out. So this was all prior destruction. Windows were all shot out. They groped their way down a dark hall. They found the minister working by a kerosene lamp. There was no computer, and there would have been no power to run it if he had one. And no organization. That was the Ministry of Education. Uh, and that was symptomatic of the total breakdown of institutional government in Afghanistan in 2000. So, Ambassador, I I'm curious, before 9-11, before the U.S. Uh, went in in 2001, what was the U.S.-Afghan relationship like? Were there any, you know, realistic diplomatic ties? Was there collaboration between the U.S. government and the, the Taliban government in Afghanistan prior to to basically 9-11? Uh, there, was, there was some interchange. We did not recognize the Taliban. We did not reopen our embassy, which had been closed earlier uh, due to the rocket attacks in Kabul and the ki uh, killing of our then ambassador, Spike Dubs. Uh, but we had met with the Taliban several places. There was international pressure on the Taliban to control narcotics, and then uh, after the bombings of our embassies, which were attributed to al-Qaeda, and we were, began pressing the Taliban to get al-Qaeda out of the country. And this was a couple of years before 9-11. Uh, so there were various meetings, different officials, Assistant Secretary of State for South Asia had meetings with the Taliban, um, but we did not recognize them. I think the only two countries... Uh, that recognized them, I think Saudi Arabia, maybe the UAE and Pakistan, uh, maybe three. Otherwise, there was no international recognition. So now let's jump into 9-11 and the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan in 2001, shortly thereafter. Uh, I mean, for us, it's been almost 20 years. Ryan and I, I think we're four and five years old, so our collective memories <laughs> of this, uh, just this huge event in our history is sort of non-existent to an extent, right? Like, I mean, so we invaded because Al-Qaeda attacked us on 9-11 because we viewed the Taliban as uh, sheltering Al-Qaeda. Uh, what was sort of, uh, what was it like sort of on the ground at that time when 9-11 was happening in the U.S. government, perhaps in Afghanistan. Can you sort of give us that uh, that look inside? Yes, although remember, this is derivative. I wasn't, uh, I, I, I was uh, otherwise engaged in Bahrain and then Iraq. Uh, but the, the war happened quickly, 2001. We 
had this huge success with air power and special forces throughout the Taliban. Then you get into this problem. Okay, you want a light footprint. That's that's groovy. But you don't want the Taliban really. They seem to be defeated, but they were still remnants. And you still had potential for al-Qaeda coming back. So if you want to leave, which we did, you have to leave something behind. Otherwise, you just leave a vacuum that pulls all the things back in that you just got rid of. And so this produced the bond conference uh, headed by the UN, active US participation, laid out a kind of political roadmap for the governing of Afghanistan. But I think what's important to understand is how difficult it is to get out once you get in. Uh, you can go in and say, I want to, I want to leave soon. Well, fine. Who do you turn power over to? Are you absolutely convinced that once you've killed a bunch of folk, that's enough? And you can just go home, and if they come back, it's fine. Um, but if you don't want them back, who's going to be in power? How do you get agreement? If they're going to be in power, you know, if the state needs an economy to function. And so basically, we kind of tiptoed back in piece by piece. It wasn't a big decision. Uh, the way people tell it now, you'd think we went in to create democracy. Actually, quite the contrary, we went in to try to get out as quickly as we could, having brought justice to Al-Qaeda. Uh, and for that matter, we put very few troops into Afghanistan. And then, uh, of course, two years later, we were going into Iraq, which completely shifted the, the influence and the resources. But initially, we had very few troops. We prevented NATO from sending additional troops to stabilize because we thought they would get in the way of our hunting terrorists. Um, we did not begin real economic development aid for almost two years. The, the early aid that went to Afghanistan was entirely so-called humanitarian assistance for refugee relief feeding people. So we didn't even get into a development program until 2004. And the numbers, the dollar amounts in those years were very tiny. In fact, in 2005, I proposed that we do an extra $600 million of economic assistance for the next year, 2006. Uh, there were all kinds of things that I thought were really important. It, $600 million looked like big money then, looks like small money now. Uh, in any event, out of that proposal of $600 million, I only got 43. Uh, the rest all got converted to Iraq in the end, uh, or at least didn't get approved for Afghanistan. So I think it, it's just useful to people who, who sort of see it now when we had this huge presence to remember how our policy evolved. And so one of the things you will hear frequently uh, people say as well, you know, you've been at this 20 years, couldn't you tell you couldn't do it? And I like to remind people there is no policy it that we were doing for 20 years. By my count, we have had, if you include Biden's latest withdrawal, we've had 10 separate policies in Afghanistan. We have an average life of two years to a policy before we change our mind and do something else. Uh, it's very hard to produce social change when you're so impatient that you rush off in a different direction every couple of years. Ambassador, you, you talked about right the initial success of, of the US invasion and then right so the goal initially was to to go in and 
uh, respond to the uh, the attacks of 9-11. Um, but at what point did reconstruction uh, of, the, of the country and the attempt at, um, you know, basically state building become the primary effort? And, and what, I mean, you mentioned some of the challenges, but uh, can you kind of uh, get into your time as ambassador where the, the Taliban saw a resurgence, there was this reassessment and also the renewed commitment? I was there from 2005 to seven. And we were still doing fairly well. Our presence was much smaller. We had, when I left, we had only about 25,000 troops in Afghanistan. Um, and our effort to rebuild Afghan security forces was just beginning to get a little steam. This was before the big decisions of President Obama. So we had, we were working toward a goal uh, police, army, everything, all in Afghan, that is of about 200, I think 216,000 if you added them all together, what we were trying to build. At that point, we already had approximately 600,000 Iraqis under arms in Iraq. Just to give you a comparative difference of how big the effort was to build the Iraqi forces, how small the Afghan effort was. Um, there were the Clearly, the insurgency was getting worse. It was not nearly out of control. And the last sort of official analytical telegram report that I sent from Afghanistan before my departure, best I remember, this would have been early 2007, I said, we are not losing now. We have no margin for surprise in a country that is full has been full of surprises historically, and we could be losing in a year. Uh, that's where that was how I saw the situation then. So let's fast forward now fourteen years, and that we find ourselves winding down this war. President Biden's made the announcement that all troops will be out by uh, the anniversary of September eleventh, the uh, the twentieth anniversary of September eleventh. Uh, we've seen these peace negotiations uh, go on with the Taliban. But uh, before we dive into that, what does the battle map look like? Who actually controls what? Like, what does the Taliban control? What does the Afghan government control? And what do these warlords control? Okay, I can an I answer as best I can. But remember that neither the American military nor the Afghans put out any statistics, combat figures, or maps anymore. It's all classified. Uh, there's figures and things are derived from newspaper accounts and observers on the ground and people you can talk to. Um, at this point, the Taliban controls somewhere between 50 and 80 percent of the country. Very rough figures, mostly rural or entirely rural. They don't control any of the province capitals. Their presence on the roads has increased. Now, there's been a considerable increase in Taliban control over the last year. As remember, in February 2020, we signed an agreement with the Taliban. It's not a peace treaty. It was a withdrawal agreement. Uh, as part of that withdrawal agreement, we stopped fighting. The Taliban agreed not to fight with us. We also pushed the Afghans to a more defensive stand. So strategically, from the signing of that agreement, we and the Afghan forces basically stood on the defensive, striking back when hit hard, and the Taliban 
in fact, kept on the offensive, pulling back a bit when they hit something too hard or we went out and bombed them. The result was, you, when you're looking at the situation now, how much ground they control, that's after a year plus in which we completely ceded the strategic initiative to the Taliban. Uh, and that's a hell of a way to fight a, an insurgency and a defensive war to hand the initiative over to them. Um, it has also led to a certain amount of demoralization of the Afghan forces. Um, so it's not a pretty picture right now. The Taliban appear to be uh, grouping around a number of cities, which they may attempt to take. They have made several attempts in the past, beginning in 2014, to take provincial capitals. Every one of those attacks was defeated. So it's not like there is a, a, you know, kind of a steady um, front line advancing from the Taliban and the government being defeated. It's much more complicated. And a lot of ground the Taliban controls is now rural areas where we stopped flying and fighting and bombing. The Afghans pulled out of those areas as well. Uh, but the situation is certainly serious. And I would expect that you're going to see some very major Taliban attacks on cities. Possibly, could, could happen before we leave. Probably not. Uh, most, most likely right after we go out the door uh, when our air power goes away. So uh, with this battle map, uh, I, I want to next turn to the Taliban's strength uh, because it's, a, it's important. I mean, I guess it's, it's really astounding that at the very low end, uh, roughly 50% of the country is controlled by the Taliban. And we've been there for, for 20 years. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm curious uh, where they get their funding, their personnel numbers, and the weaponry. Is it, is it remnants of, of Soviet and, and possibly American weapons? But how, how are they so, so strong? Of course, nobody, I don't think any of the figures on Taliban strength are worth very much. Um, they, their equipment has steadily increased. It doesn't really cost a whole lot to run their kind of a war, since it's not exactly a high-tech battle organization. Um, some of their funding comes probably from Pakistan. A lot of it comes from individual donors, some in the Gulf. <laughs> some of it comes out of drugs. I don't think that is nearly as major an element as we have sometimes claimed. Uh, some of it comes from local taxes. The vast majority of Taliban fighters are Afghan. Uh, some of them are people, Afghans, who were refugees, went to madrasas in Pakistan. Um, but the figures I've seen when people have really looked at, you know, who am I killing and who am I taking prisoner battlefield, the majority of Taliban are fighting within 10 or 20 miles of their home villages in Afghanistan. They are Afghans. Uh, tribes are split. Uh, part of the advantage, the Taliban, of course, is the advantage of any insurgency that you can pick where you want to fight, where the government has to defend everything. Um, it took a long time for us to get to the idea that we needed a major size army to deal with the, fact with, with the Taliban. Um, and we didn't begin trying to build a big Afghan army until Obama's decisions of 2009, which really means it doesn't start till 2010. Um, 
And one of the one of the things you need to remember, if you look at the our our effort to grow the Afghan army, it kind of looks like a flat roller coaster. That you know, we really only started getting the money, the troops, and the equipment built up in 2010, and by 2013 we started the drawdown. Um, now I don't know who thought you could build a you know two thirds increase in a underdeveloped country's army in three years and be gone. Um, but that's what we tried to do. And then from 2013 to 14, we pulled our troops way down. 2014, uh, Obama decided that we were no longer at war with the Taliban. We stopped giving air support to the Afghan forces in 2014. Uh, and for two years, we didn't give them any air support. And by, in fact, President Obama was intending to have all the troops out except for a thousand by the end of 2016. Then at 2016, we were losing the war. We had been here before. Uh, at that point in uh, uh, 2017, President Bush enlarged the war enormously, and that's when you had this big, the big, bigger surge. Uh, wasn't the biggest, but it was forty thousand troops. But again, trying to do everything on a very tight timeline, reversed several. Obama reversed some of his own decisions. He reversed the last decision for a pullout. He reversed the decision. Started using air support again. Um, so then you went back into again to a major effort, but time limited by President Bush. Uh, so we have we've flopped around, and we've changed our goals, and we often haven't given enough time for the things that we decided to do to actually be done. Sometimes I've joked, you know, that I don't know if any American parent who would think they could take their kid out of the 10th grade and throw them in as a junior in college and expect because they gave them a lot of tutors, they'd be ready to graduate in two years. But that's essentially what we were asking the Afghan army to do. We're going to take an illiterate soldier at a two-thirds jump or 50% jump in the force, including finding the new officers, and we're going to create it all in two years, and it's supposed to look like. That's, that's nonsense. Certainly, Ambassador. And I mean, we had an interview on this podcast with General uh, Kenneth McKenzie, who is a CENTCOM commander right now, back in November. And he noted that the Taliban hadn't really given us full confidence in the peace process, that they were to be trusted partners, and that they had to demonstrate a lot more. Uh, certainly, I am not sure where the general stands uh, on those comments right now, but uh, we have this peace process going on, yet we still have these attacks. Uh, there was recently an attack on, I think, a girls' school in Kabul. Uh, the Taliban did not take a responsibility for that, but, I mean, we're, we're seeing this just a spate of violence right now after this drawdown has been announced, and uh, President Biden said it's, I think, a uh, non-conditional drawdown and i certainly think part of that is dependent on this peace process that's going on how confident are you 
in the peace process, how confident are you in the idea that the Taliban would actually hold their side of the deal? Well, first of all, there is no peace. There is process. There is no peace negotiation. Negotiations have, substantive negotiations have never begun. The process of meeting has begun, but no substantive issues have ever been put on the table. Uh, The Afghan government side, which is a composite of the government, actually, and other political forces, it's called the Republic team, has put substantive proposals forward. Taliban have never agreed to discuss any of those. They've just produced more conditions, more prisoners to be released, other things, concessions. Um, There is, in my judgment, absolutely no reason to believe you will get to a peace anytime soon, unless it's a peace of a Taliban. There is not one thing you can point to that shows the Taliban expect to negotiate about any of the things we have talked about. We've said we want to maintain the constitutional order. We want to maintain basic freedoms, speech, press, and above all, we want to maintain the progress in women's rights. Taliban have never agreed to any of that. They, they say rather vaguely that they will guarantee women's rights under the Quran. Uh, don't know what that, you know, since there are a lot of interpretations of, uh, you know, what that means, you know, UAE is, United Arab Emirates is an Islamic country, and you have women graduating with, you know, upper, uh, you know, graduate degrees and running businesses and doing all kinds of things. Taliban are basically shutting down women's schools above primary in areas they control. So there's there's a lot of room for interpretation. Um, They, and when you look at the record of wars like this that have ended by negotiation, that is usually a process of years. And it's a process that generally reaches fruition only when you have a military stalemate. And the two sides each recognize they can't get all they want by winning and makes sense to get some of what you want in negotiation. So <clears throat> there hasn't been anything like that amount of time. You do not have a military stalemate. You do not have a belief on the Taliban side that they can't win. I mean, we're talking about we're getting out on 9-11. 9-11 for Al-Qaeda now becomes Al-Qaeda Victory Day. 9-11 of 2021 is the date that Al-Qaeda triumphs over the United States in alliance with the Taliban. That's what it is for them. You can decide it's important to us or it's not important to us, but for God's sake, don't call it our kind of victory because it's not. Um, And so the Taliban think they're winning. They have some hesitations. They've said they don't want to take Kabul by force. And that may be true because they are concerned about a slide back into a civil war. They don't want that. And they actually would like American money to continue. They don't want American troops, but they'd like us to stay involved in the economic rebuilding of the country. So they may well look for a way to manage if they are winning as the way they say they're winning or think they're winning, then they may try to manage something that looks like a negotiated surrender. That, but that's not a peace agreement in anything like the terms that we have talked about peace. 
Now, you may, if the Afghan army doesn't fall apart and the war goes on, you may get to that kind of peace process. I, I would certainly stay involved and keep trying. But uh, no, it's not going to happen anytime soon. When it comes to peace, it reminds me of what an Arab friend told me once on another subject. He said, you can wait for this sitting down. Well, Ambassador, that's that's quite a, an interesting anecdote. And uh, you, you've certainly laid out uh, your position on the, the unconditional withdrawal. But I'm, I'm curious, right? I mean, uh, President Biden would say that the United States has achieved its initial objectives and that right now our, our current objective is unclear. And so as such, it's, it's time for us to, to withdraw. But um, if, if we were to stay, what would you suggest be the policy going forward? What is the most likely pathway to success if the U.S. were to not withdraw? Well, you know, it, it's a fun question, but it's kind of irrelevant because the decision is made, and I do not believe that decision is going to be reversed. The, the crux of the decision and the crux of the argument is how much risk the United States takes uh, by leaving Afghanistan to its fate. Uh, and I, many of my colleagues who have served in Afghanistan believe that there is a fairly high degree of risk that by the, the psychological empowerment of Al-Qaeda by this sense of victory, that you strengthen the overall sense that God is on their side. Um, and that the social collapse of Afghanistan, which is possible, could lead to widening instability. Others, you know, look at that same picture and say, no, the threat has diminished. There are other threats in the world. We have to spread the resources differently. It's time to get out. You know, the future is going to tell us, uh, settle that argument, maybe. We're not going to settle it by arguing. In the process, of course, of making this decision, we are essentially abandoning a lot of secondary objectives. We've spent a lot of money and a lot of time over the last 20 years talking about the importance of democracy, uh, the importance of freedom of the press and freedom of some freedom of religion, freedom of speech, uh, women's rights. We've spent a lot of taxpayer money to get, uh, help build those things. A lot of Afghans have come to believe in them. The Afghans who believe in them are regularly being killed by the Taliban. There is a regular process of assassination going on in the streets of Kabul and Jalalabad and Herat of younger people who are not the leaders of Afghanistan and not the military leaders. These are journalists. This is the head of an election observer commission. These are 20-year-old girls who worked in the back of the television station on production and weren't even on the, uh, on the screen. Uh, this is three women judges gunned down in their car. The Taliban don't claim credit for those assassinations, but it's pretty clear that they are theirs, probably most of them directed by the Haqqani movement, which is part of the Taliban. So there's a pretty clear message there that. Uh, what you might call our kind of people are not their kind of people. And they're sending a pretty clear message to civil society and to the sort of educated, younger elite of Afghanistan. You have no place here when we rule. Leave or die. Um, now, the bombing of the girls' school actually may not be Taliban. 
that is much more likely. Nobody's claimed credit, but it's more likely to be the Islamic State. They are very anti-Shia. This is a this girls' school is in a Shia neighborhood. So I, I'm a little reluctant to couple them together. Um, but on your question, so personally, I, to answer your question, I would have kept a very small force in Afghanistan, uh, enough to keep the Taliban at bay, enough to give security to the contractors that maintain Afghan Air Force, which needs to grow. Um, and a, and our NATO partners were willing to stay. Uh, one of the amusing things, in a way, of President Biden's return to normal practice is we went out, really had a serious consultation with the NATO allies to see what they thought about Afghanistan, and then we ignored all their advice and made our own decision. <clears throat> so I, I think the decision is moving too quickly. It endangers too much, uh, and uh, and it betrays a lot of people who believed in us and our values and a lot of statements that we would stay, including in NATO. Uh, but the die is cast, and now a lot of the fighting, the fighting's already been up to Afghans. I mean, remember, we have had no combat ground forces involved in Afghanistan in the last couple of years. We had no casualties in Afghanistan last year. And the two years preceding that uh, was twenty or less per year. So this isn't much. Of, that's not much of a war. Um, the Afghans are doing all the fighting, and they've been doing all the dying at the rate of several thousand a month off in combat. Uh, so what we are ending is our support for an Afghan war much more than an American war. I personally feel a sense of betrayal. Uh, but, you know, it is, has been 20 years, and the president's the person who got elected. It's his decision to make. So as we've been going through this conversation, and, you know, you've been outlining your very serious concerns about this drawdown, especially with regards to, you know, quote-unquote, our kind of people, the people who have helped us, I keep getting this image of that helicopter over that embassy during the fall of Saigon in Vietnam in 1975, and the people clamoring to try and get on the the U.S. vessels, sending, giving their children to the U.S. soldiers. Uh, and, and I think, I mean, I would not want to be someone who helped the U.S. right now living in Kabul in Afghanistan. Uh, do you think we're going to see something very similar with regards to just people trying to get in, you know, like trying to escape Kabul? And do you think the U.S. government is doing enough to actually help the people who helped us uh, during that, uh, during, you know, the entirety of the war, whether it's translators, whether they're like, you know, uh, policy officials, whether they're in the bureaucracies. I mean, I know uh, General Petraeus uh, has sort of uh, spoken out about this regarding that we need to sort of expedite visa entry and so on. Uh, what's your take on that? Well, I don't think we are yet uh, at a situation equivalent to the fall of Saigon, uh, which was made worse, of course, by our then Ambassador Graham Martin refusing to give any do any planning for evacuation. Uh, but that said, your sec second half of your question, are we doing enough to bring out the people to whom we have an explicit commitment, the interpreters, people who work with us? And the answer is no, we're not doing enough. Now, we have in the last month or so added extra personnel in Kabul to try to expedite those visas. But 
we're we're not where we need to be yet. And then there's this much bigger issue, you know, that we're all the public discussion has been about this seventeen or eighteen thousand so-called special immigrant visas, people who work directly with us or in our missions. That doesn't touch all the people that you're the kind of people that were getting on those helicopters in Saigon, the people that had worked uh, people that have worked with us, with the government in Afghanistan. Uh, if the if the thing really comes apart, it has not. Let me stress that again: it has not come apart yet. And this is a something that's going to be decided largely by the combat quality and morale of the Afghan army. But if it does come apart, then I would say that we will have a moral debt to the people who believed in the values we taught for 20 years uh, and who accepted democracy and became journalists and became critics of the government as well as of the Taliban and people who were honest judges, which there are a few but not many, uh, people who went through our training and became senior military, uh, but you know, people who became leaders of civil society organizations, election organizations, they didn't work for us. They worked for their own country, but they also worked for the beliefs that we taught and stood for. And I think we're going to have a moral responsibility to them if the country does fall apart. And I don't think we're addressing, we have not addressed that yet. Well, Ambassador, I just have one more question for you today. Do you think we'll be back? In Afghanistan, yeah, uh, it's hard enough to see tomorrow in Afghanistan. You want long-term prediction? Uh, I have no idea. It is not impossible. It is very, very difficult to see any way that we would go back into Afghanistan at this point, um, and it's very difficult to see how we would do that. Um, you know, I mean, if you have kind of the worst thing, if you have terrorist threats coming out of Afghanistan, after 40 years of war, these are pretty tough people. They're not going to be all that bothered if we decide we need a few airstrikes or something in the future. If you're really talking about going back into Afghanistan, you're talking about an enormous operation. And I can't see that. But then, you know, when we turned our back on Afghanistan in 1992, we couldn't foresee how we would get back. So I, that certainly goes beyond any analytical capabilities I've got. On that note, Ambassador, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. Uh, we, you know, so many of your concerns are just so valid. And I think the public needs to engage with these viewpoints and really understand and, you know, interrogate uh, this drawdown because no foreign policy issue is uh, simple. And uh, before we close, I just want to point out, Ambassador, you are the president of the American Academy of Diplomacy, a great organization is doing a lot of great work trying to raise up uh, folks in foreign policy and diplomacy. I know uh, your organization actually did an event with my old alma mater, uh, the Ford School at the University of Michigan, the Michigan Ambassadors Forum. Uh, hopefully there'll be more events like that in the future, especially now that the pandemic is sort of coming to an end. Yeah, we plan to be back in Ann Arbor in the fall. We've got dates already and speakers lined up, so stay tuned. Uh, and, you know, while I hope it doesn't uh, 
seem like competition. We have two podcasts out there, American Diplomat and the General and the Ambassador, uh, that address various functions, various questions about sort of what's it like to be a Foreign Service officer. Uh, so thank you um, for giving me this moment of commercial interruption. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I appreciate it. And uh, on the issue of the visas that you mentioned, by the way, just uh, yesterday, <clears throat> there was a letter that came out. I signed it along with about 200 of my colleagues, former ambassadors and generals, particularly uh, on this visa question, urging faster action by the government. I think it is already on the Middle East Institute website as well as other places. Certainly. Uh, for our audience, folks, so we will be uh, linking that letter uh, in our description as well as a link to the American Academy of Diplomacy. Ambassador, once again, thank you so much uh, for joining us. We'll be sure to check uh, more of the uh, Academy's work out. And uh, also, perhaps we might be in Ann Arbor for that next event. So thank you so much.